Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Kentucky's new U.S. Senator Rand Paul talks about spending and political compromise. Author Christopher Whalen discusses inflation. The Cato Institute's Tim Lynch talks about California's Prop 19. Cato's Walter Olson discusses the fads of the legal profession. And Cato's Justin Logan evaluates our post-Cold War defense policy. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Green energy promises uh, something of an alluring future. And uh, the Cato Institute has recently put out a book, The False Promise of Green Energy, which is available at Cato.org. We're going to use that as a jumping off point today to talk about uh, energy, where the United States gets its energy and where energy comes from around the globe. I'm talking to Jerry Taylor, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Peter Van Doren, editor of Regulation Magazine, also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. So, Jerry Taylor, to you, President Obama has said that by some time in the 2030s, nearly 80% of the energy that's produced on behalf of the United States will be from clean or perhaps green sources. What does that mean? We didn't quite say that. He said that's his goal, which is sort of like on New Year's Eve saying in 25 years, I want to lose 30 pounds. And it's a fine goal, nothing objectively wrong with it. But like all New Year's Eve resolutions, it's uh, very difficult to take them very seriously, especially when no one's going to roust uh, Barack Obama of an old folks home and force him to account for that promise either being made or broken. The uh, facts, however, is that he defines clean energy in such an elastic manner that includes every single fuel in the electricity sector except coal and oil. Now, oil only constitutes about 2% of electricity generation, coal about 44%. So the reality is, is what Obama is really saying is he wants to move the market share of coal and oil from around 46% of the market to about 20% of the market in 25 years or so. That might very well happen whether government lifts a finger or not. It turns out that uh, the cheapest form of power in the market today is gas-fired power. About 95% of all the investments in new plant uh, construction over the past 20 years have been in gas-fired power. That's all we're really building at the moment. It might very well be that all that new gas-fired power the next 25 years gets us pretty close to that figure that Obama hopes for in the economy in 2035 without the government necessarily having to do a whole lot of anything. To you, Peter Van Doren, you talk about how President Obama has talked a lot about green jobs, that is, jobs that will be created by this shift from traditional sources of energy to however he defines a green energy. But uh, as you say, there are no free lunches. Politics is often about ratifying the sentiments of middle-class voters, and middle-class voters are in favor of jobs and that are in favor of something called green jobs and as opposed to dirty jobs. And so lots of programs are said to create green jobs, and so solar and wind and you name it, your technology, the subsidies for those things are rationalized as net creators of something called green jobs. Those, in a cost-benefit analysis, you could think of green jobs as maybe the benefit side, but these discussions never seem to talk about the cost. They act as if that jobs come from heaven and the president pronounces that they exist and that they come through magic. But in fact, they come through wealth transfers from existing facilities and existing producers of things. So either taxes have to be raised to pay for the subsidies for the green sector, in which case... We lose jobs because taxes mean that people don't have as much money to spend on everything else in the economy. So the jobs that are disappearing are, in fact, invisible. They're all over the sectors of the economy that are taxed. The other way to create green jobs is to have a slight surcharge on electricity bills that, in effect, creates a wealth transfer from consumers and also the declines in production of existing fossil fuel generators. And those wealth transfers go to the green generators and and fund green jobs, but they create job losses and wealth losses in those existing sectors. What's interesting is this new book that we've published uh, looks very closely at the studies that have been marshaled by green jobs proponents. And what we find is that without exception, these studies don't count lost jobs from the brown energy sector, which is to be strangled to engorge the green energy sector. So it's like a cost-benefit study in which you're only looking at the benefits and not the costs. They don't consider the lost jobs from what Peter just mentioned, higher energy prices or higher taxes. And they consider jobs relabeled as new jobs. So if you're the iconic Wichita lineman out there fixing wires in the Midwest and your utility is currently a brown utility, but through enough investments, it now becomes a green utility. That's a new job created, even though there's no new job. You've just relabeled the job. 
So if you look closely at all of the assertions being made in these studies, you find that it's as dodgy as an Enron balance sheet. But even more to the point, even if it's true for some reason that green energy is more labor intensive than brown energy, that's not an argument for green energy. It's an argument against it because you don't create wealth by maximizing the inputs associated with production. All things being equal, you want to minimize the inputs associated with production, not maximize them. And in fact, it's an argument against the proposition they're making, which is that green jobs will help stimulate the economy. And by inputs, you're talking labor intensity and uh, other resources that are required, plus the government involvement itself. Oh, sure. I mean, if the only point of public policy is to create jobs and we're supposed to do a full stop at that point, there are far better policies we could adopt. We could ban food imports and farm machinery, and we create a lot of jobs in the Midwest. But that would be a horrific policy as far as wealth creation is concerned. But that's the same sort of argument being made in the green jobs arena. One of the great pictures I've ever seen that tries to convey what Jerry is saying. I'm a lifelong subscriber to the National Geographic, and a couple of issues ago, they featured, had a whole profile of India, and the opening picture was of men shoveling coal into a train by shovel. So I said to myself, yeah, I mean, there are lots of jobs in India, (laughs) but their productivity is extremely low, and the incomes generated by those jobs are extraordinarily low. So job creation isn't really what people want. People want income creation, which comes from productivity growth, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the interesting thing about the way the green jobs and the green energy issue has mutated over time is years ago, only two or three years ago, green energy was sold as a means of addressing climate change and environmental destruction. But that hasn't done very well in the polls, and uh, it doesn't really help politicians much. So the new argument is, well, green energy is the is the way we're going to uh, bring our economy into the 21st century with great uh, force. Now, the uh, author of this Regulation Magazine article that uh, Peter mentioned wrote elsewhere that uh, in Pennsylvania, for instance, green jobs proponents were very excited about how green energy mandates in that state had created maybe something like 25, 2,600 jobs. And this was being bandied about as evidence of the success of state programs to create green jobs through a green, you know, forcing a green economy. The author then said, well, but how many jobs were created by the revolution in uh, gas extraction in Pennsylvania and hydraulic fracking? And it turns out something like 86 or 87,000 jobs. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that we're being hypnotized by uh, 2,500 jobs in the green energy sector in Pennsylvania when right under our very noses, a real true energy revolution is going on, creating some serious numbers of uh, jobs and serious wealth, and that doesn't get virtually any attention. Using a more narrow definition of uh, so-called green energy, how does the security, that is to say the dependability of that energy, compare to fossil fuels or other sources? Well, about 3.6% of our electricity supply comes from what people traditionally think of as green energy, solar, wind, geothermal, biomass, that sort of thing. And it turns out that that stuff is very unreliable. It's not dependable. The wind doesn't always blow. And the fact that the wind doesn't always blow almost shut down the uh, Texas grid only a couple of months ago. The fact that the rain doesn't always fall harms states which rely on hydropower. In fact, that was the initial event, which then led through a series of events to the California electricity crisis of 2000 and 2001, the lack of rainfall. And in the ethanol market, if you go to transportation, a recent study was published in Regulation Magazine, which looked at the variability associated with corn production relative to the variability associated with foreign oil imports. And what they found is from 1960 to uh, just a few years ago, corn harvests were twice as uncertain and twice as variable as were foreign oil imports into uh, U.S. ports. So, you know, it may very well be that uh, foreign oil supplies are subject to disruption, strikes, warfare, terrorist assaults. All those things are true. But uh, corn harvest in the United States, which we rely on for our ethanol production, are twice as vulnerable to disruption. So you're not gaining anything from a reliability standpoint by moving to renewable. You're actually moving into a far more unreliable situation. Obviously, events in Japan have caused a lot of people in the United States to rethink the love affair or newfound love affair, I suppose, with nuclear power, first of all, categorized this renewed interest in nuclear power? Well, it started, in part, it was prompted by the price of conventional fuels during the recent economic boom in the 2005 to 2008 period, particularly after Hurricane Katrina had some negative effects on supply in the Gulf. The price of natural gas in the United States went to $14 per million BTUs 
And that suddenly makes lots of alternatives, including nuclear, look like a reasonable hedge against traditional fossil fuel prices, particularly since, as Jerry noted, something on the order of 95% of all electric generation capacity in the United States since the mid-90s has been natural gas. And so when natural gas prices went up after Katrina, the nuclear lobby and even just more reasonably neutral economists said, hmm, maybe nuclear, we should think of it as an option that we ought to have in our portfolio. Well, this natural gas fracking that Jerry talked about, this recent drilling method, which has unleashed all sorts of supply that we knew was there but wasn't economically recoverable, natural gas prices are now below $4 per million BTU. So they've gone from 14 to 4 And they're continuing to go down now, even though oil and other things are going up. So the economics of nuclear look as bleak now as they did back 15 years ago. But the subsidy game has been started, and so it's not clear whether they'll give up the ghost on that front or not. Yeah, a few months ago, the uh, CEO of uh, Acceleron Corporation, John Rowe, told the press that uh, gas prices had to be around $9 to $9.50 per million BTU before nuclear power can compete. Well, as Peter mentioned, there are four now. And uh, a report I get on consensus forecasting, where this journal for Cato donors uh, benefit, reports what the consensus is amongst people who forecast futures prices for a living or the future price of commodities for a living. They report that uh, the consensus forecast for gas prices over the next five to 10 years is about $5 per million BTU. So if that's correct, and it may not be correct, uh, forecasts are, are guesses. They may be informed guesses, but they've certainly been proven wrong in the past. But if it's correct, nuclear power has been done in by hydraulic fracking and the revolution in gas markets. And there's something I think that we should also draw from that beyond just a calculation about the competitiveness of nuclear power. Remember a few years ago, virtually everybody in the United States and around the world thought gas prices in North America were high and were going to stay high till the end of time. It wasn't just Katrina that gave us high-priced natural gas. We'd seen increases ever since the early 1990s. And in fact, they were so severe that DuPont and Dow and other chemical companies were closing down plants in the United States and shifting abroad because they forecast gas prices be astronomic till the end of time. This was right on the eve of the revolution in hydraulic fracking. Everybody was wrong about the future price of natural gas, and billions of dollars were lost by people who made market decisions based on those forecasts. The conclusion you take home here is that the future price of energy is simply unknowable. Even when all the best experts in the world believe X, it doesn't necessarily mean X is the case. If, for instance, that same sort of technology finds its way migrating into the oil sector, and there are some indications that's occurring right now, it could similarly lead to a revolution in oil markets. I mean, we've got twice as much oil locked up in shale rock in the Rocky Mountain West as there are proved reserves in Saudi Arabia. Now, we don't harvest that crude oil because it's very expensive. But if we find a way to harvest that crude oil, things are going to change. Hydraulic fracking can be used in the Bakken fields in the upper Midwest of the United States. There's a tremendous amount of crude oil, currently expensive to get at, but more and more now we're starting to get at that crude, and that could radically change things. So when people forecast the future and say, this is the future of the energy market, or that is, or it's going to be wind, or it's going to be solar, or it's going to be nuke, or it's going to be gas, you have to take all these with not a grain of salt, but a couple of city blocks of salt, because in the past, these forecasts have all proved pretty bad in retrospect. President Obama's plans seem to be to favor certain forms of energy over others. And if you wouldn't mind, make a very basic point here, the innovation that we've seen in natural gas what is the relationship there between having a free and open market for the supply of energy and the kind of innovation that we've seen? What's interesting is Jerry and I, when we talk about energy, we differ from almost ev all other analysts we know in that we don't think energy is special. That is, the, the normal economics of supply and demand and letting things happen, people are quite comfortable thinking that is appropriate for note cards or pens or T-shirts. But energy, both the conventional left and conventional right, for different reasons, think that energy markets need political intervention. We haven't repealed the laws of economics, and so things are governed by the same forces that we're comfortable with in other markets. But for a variety of reasons, people just don't want to let energy markets do what they do. What's interesting is that the extent to which the government has tried to rig the markets to promote certain forms of energy over others they have largely, though not entirely, failed in their projects. For instance, we've been parking a tremendous amount of money on nuclear power and so-called clean coal and renewable energies, and yet 
The biggest innovations in the energy sector since World War II have occurred in the gas sector. First, with the advent of combined cycle gas-fired uh, generating uh, plants, which made gas competitive with coal, which it hadn't been in the past, and that revolutionized the electricity sector. And now, recently, with the innovations in hydraulic fracking. Both of these technologies emerged largely outside of the ambit of government, without much government assistance, though if you want to tie yourselves in pretzels, you can always find some dollars and some programs which helped encourage this revolution. But they occurred in the private sector. And then note, in all the arenas where the government's been parking a lot of money and making a lot of bets, do we see major innovations and major advances? No, we don't. They've been backing losers. Now, if they back the losers hard enough and muscularly enough, you can create full markets. I mean, we have that. We have an ethanol market that is substantially larger than what it would be absent government programs. We have a nuclear power sector that would completely disappear absent government help. So if the government works hard enough, it can create a Potemkin village market and it can prop something up and it can affect the energy sector. But it takes a heck of a lot of work to do. And the, the government's energies and dollars are constrained, so it cannot accomplish that wherever it wishes. All right, gentlemen, we will leave it there. The book is The False Promise of Green Energy available at our website, Cato.org. Peter Van Doren, editor of Regulation Magazine, which also discusses energy on a regular basis, including the current issue. He's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And Jerry Taylor, senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And if you go to our YouTube channel, that's youtube.com slash Cato Institute video, you'll see Jerry's recent speech from the Florida City Seminar, where he discussed many of these green technologies. And you can uh, also get to there from our website, Cato.org. There was no national bank from the days of Andrew Jackson until 1913. It's a fact that's easily forgotten. In light of our national debts and the recent housing bubble, it's definitely worth reevaluating our banking system. Christopher Whalen discussed his new book, Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream, at the Cato Institute in February. A lot of my friends on Wall Street who are brilliant analysts have been examining the crisis, and in most cases, they've only gone back about 10 years. The trouble with that is that if you only go back 10 years, you're still in the Greenspan era of easy money, when we were able to levitate a country with declining industry and rising legacy expenses for basically our parents and grandparents, and make us all think it was 1970 again. I think it's important for us to have context and to think about our country a little longer than 10 years or even 20 years ago, because if you do, what you find is that this free enterprise society of ours, this libertarian republic, has always taken a bit of a license when it came to matters of finance. A lot of people who read my book are astounded that Abraham Lincoln is in fact the father of paper money and that the necessity of war and of really keeping the republic intact drove him to turn to a great Ohioan named Salmon Chase and basically said, go out and finance the war for me. Most people don't realize that this is why we have national banks. In the textbooks, we're taught that national banks were created to provide us with a sound currency and that there was rational design involved. Well, no, these were agents who were going to go out in competition with the state chartered banks and sell the debt of the federal government, which nobody wanted. In fact, when they first issued greenbacks, it might interest you to know that they bore interest. This was a little notice provision that was deleted by the Congress a few years later, but they were so nervous about issuing these green pieces of paper that could not be redeemed for gold that they actually turned them into bonds. And that is the proper image. So we go through that century of great growth and great chaos. When we had no central bank, remember from Andrew Jackson to 1913, there was no Fed. We just had the Treasury. They issued money through the national banks. And before that, they just issued money. The Treasury basically competed with the big banks in New York, who were their agents. The banks collected the single biggest source of revenue in this country, tariffs. Until World War I, tariffs were the single largest source of revenue to the federal government before we were all taught that tariffs are evil and that protecting one's domestic industries from competition overseas is, you know, a violation of the ethic of free trade. But I think the most impressionable or the, the part of the book that got me most excited and I think also most concerned 
was when I went back over World War I and World War II. And when you see the change that was made uh, by having our country drawn into yet another European conflict. You know, most Americans either don't know or have forgotten that the Europeans spent the better part of 300 years killing one another. And when they showed up on our doorstep in the first decade of the 20th century, announcing their intention to do it again, they were broke. Neither the British or the French even began to have the resources to fight a war, nor did the Germans for that matter, but they had certain advantages. I noted Clarence Barron's writings at that point where he referred to German trade, not military expansionism, but trade as the ultimate weapon that was turned against American workers. So we emerged from the war, which conveniently enough helped us out of the Great Depression, and somehow or another we enshrine FDR as our savior because he did indeed lead us through war. And we create this ethic that says America is the greatest country in the world, we are a free enterprise society, but by the way, we're also a large state socialist economy where the military were large industries that got us through those two conflicts with government sponsorship are now basically calling the shots. Now, my friends on the street who've been writing about the crisis of the last 10 years or so are very surprised to hear that the bankers are in charge. Now, if you read my book, if you go in the back and read some of the wonderful works of that period that I drew on, the bankers have been in charge from day one. I gave a speech out in Indianapolis recently and I had a couple of proposals at the end and the one that got people really fired up is I said, look, let's give the Fed back to the banks. How much worse could it be? The thing I worry about, especially after completing work on this book, is that the banks are really the least of our problem. I see the Fed as bailing out the Congress, of making the Congress able to avoid decisions, able to avoid a democratic conflict. Because the essence of our society, if we are indeed to endure, is checks and balances. What does that mean? It means conflict. It means that you have to fight every day. When you hear somebody calling for consensus, you know you're in big trouble. All right, Alfred Sloan, the great leader of General Motors famously said when he was going to a board meeting and everybody at the table was in agreement, he said, no, we're not going to vote today. We need to go do some more work on this issue and develop some differences. Now, unfortunately, in our case, the conventional wisdom has been such that the prosperity of the post-war period made us able to ignore a lot of these inconsistencies and these conflicts in our system. So here we are today with our state and federal government facing a lot of obligations and liabilities that they probably can't fund. And I recalled the words of Alan Greenspan who said, yeah, you're going to get your social security payment all right. The question is, what will those dollars buy? Proposition 19 would have legalized marijuana in the state of California. That campaign has many lessons to teach about drug policy for future efforts to force governments to stand down in the war on drugs. Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, evaluated Prop 19's impact at the Cato Benefactors Summit held in February. I want to turn now to uh, Proposition 19. This was the ballot initiative in California, far and away the most important event in drug policy in 2010. Proposition 19 would have legalized the cultivation, consumption, and sale of marijuana and would have allowed municipalities in California to regulate and tax the stuff. Now, Proposition 19 fell short last November, but the margin was close. It was 54 to 46 percent. And I want to go over this campaign briefly to talk about some of the things that were done right, what the opposition said, and what are some of the lessons uh, learned from the campaign. See, polls showed that Proposition 19 was doing very well, had majority support throughout the summer and into the fall. It was just in the last few weeks of the campaign when the campaign began to intensify in those last four or five weeks that the opposition was able to close the gap and then the initiative fell short. The main question is, what happened? Why did these chunk of voters who were initially telling pollsters, yes, they were going to support Proposition 19, why did they fall off in those last few weeks to vote no on the initiative? What happened? 
Well, to begin with, the entire political establishment in California opposed the initiative. The liberal senators, Dianne Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, they opposed it. Governor Schwarzenegger, he opposed it. And the two people vying for Governor Schwarzenegger's job, Jerry Brown, his opponent, Meg Whitman, they opposed it. The Obama administration opposed it. The Attorney General Eric Holder said that he would sue California if it was approved by the voters. Also, of the 30 largest daily newspapers in California, 26 editorialized against it. Really, the only exception was the Orange County Register who supported Prop 19. The other three or four just didn't say anything on the issue. Another factor that hurt Prop 19 was the fact that it was an off-year election. See, Prop 19 polled very well among younger voters, not so well among older voters. So when 2010 was an off-year election, there was no presidential race. What tends to happen in these midterm elections is that the younger people stay home, the older people turn out. That's exactly what happened, and it hurt Proposition 19. One of the unexpected and vocal opponents to Prop 19 also turned out to be the California Chamber of Commerce. The chamber spent a quarter of a million dollars on this campaign fighting Prop 19. And they ran a lot of uh, advertisements that kind of stoked fears over traffic safety and workplace safety. One of these ads was really terrible. It kind of showed a school bus that was on its side as if it had been overturned in a traffic accident. And the ad said, if Prop 19 is approved, it's going to be legal for people to smoke pot right before they get into a car and take the wheel of a car. This is the type of scare ads that were running. It's totally untrue. Would not have allowed that at all. But these were the type of ads that were running, and it did have an impact in the campaign. Another argument that got some play was the idea that Prop 19 would generate revenue and help with the budget crisis in California. Cato published this study, The Budgetary Impact of Ending Drug Prohibition, by our senior fellow Jeff Myron, who uh, teaches economics at Harvard University and is research associate. According to Jeff's calculations, he estimated that California could have saved about $1 billion per year if it legalized marijuana and taxed it at about the same rates that they tax alcohol. We released this paper in October in the run-up to the election, got very good play in the California press, was also mentioned in the New York Times, Time Magazine, the Washington Post, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. It didn't have the impact we expected, but there's a reason for that that I think this audience can appreciate. Apparently, the prevailing attitude was that people here in California are so disgusted with the fiscal mess, and they're so angry at Sacramento and the dysfunctional government that the attitude was like, they're already mismanaging the money that we're giving them, you know, generate more revenue for the California government. It just wasn't that, that appealing to them. So this argument about generating revenue just did not find that much uh, appeal in California because of, of this mess. But the most astonishing thing to drug reformers was that Prop 19 lost in the Northern California counties of Trinity, Humboldt, and Mendocino. <laughs> I see a lot of people recognize this. For those of you who don't know, you know, California has its wine country, the Napa Valley. These Northern California counties are, or this is marijuana country. This is where a lot of it is apparently grown and harvested. A lot of people are like, wait a minute, and Prop 19 didn't do well there? Well, the explanation for that is apparently a lot of the growers were just looking at their bottom line. If marijuana is legalized, their prices are going to drop and their profits are going to drop. So that's why Prop 19 didn't do very well there. There were other factors at work as well, but I think those were some of the main obstacles. But you might ask why I'm optimistic. I thought you were going to talk about good news. Well, even though Proposition 19 did not pass, there are many reasons to be satisfied about what this initiative did accomplish. First of all, Proposition 19 got a very respectable showing in one of our largest states. Uh, as I said, it got 46% of the vote. This is the best turnout that a statewide marijuana legalization measure has gotten so far. In Alaska, in 04, got 44%. Nevada, 06, 44%. Here in California, we got 46%, and it was an off-year election. So it did well. Proposition 19 also attracted some new allies to the reform movement. The two founders of Facebook gave generous sums to the Prop 19 campaign, also got endorsements from the California NAACP and some union support. These were people who were previously silent on the drug war issue. So it was new allies to the movement, which is good. And in a sign of where the debate is, we noticed that the opposition tended to pick apart the language of Proposition 19. Like those newspaper editorials I mentioned, they didn't really, they would start off by saying drug policy is a mess in California, we've got all these negative side effects, things are bad, 
but they would just end up concluding in a wishy-washy kind of way, but Prop 19 is not the answer. They did not really go after the concept of marijuana legalization itself. Prop 19 also pressured Governor Schwarzenegger and the California legislature to support a marijuana reform initiative, or law, I should say. See, the politicians saw Prop 19 coming, they saw it was polling well, and in a last-ditch effort to kind of undercut the initiative, they supported a bill that would have reduced the penalties for marijuana possession down from a misdemeanor to what they call an infraction. No jail time, just something like a, akin to a traffic ticket. So then the argument began to be made, you know, we don't need Prop 19, we just got this. So if Prop 19 had not been coming and it had not been around the corner, we would not have seen this change in the law. Most important, the Prop 19 campaign generated a very serious dialogue and debate about drug policy. I did mention that we did see some hysterical ads, but now I'm talking about the news coverage of the entire event. Very serious treated it in very respectful tones during the entire campaign. And this was not just a California story. It was reported around the country. If there was one initiative all Americans heard about, it was Prop 19 in California. And it got play not just in the United States, but it was also reported on around the world. So it got drug policy back on the table and, again, it discussed in very respectful tones. So a lot of good things came out of the Prop 19 campaign. American military spending fell after the Cold War, but even while we cut military spending, that spending went up relative to the rest of the world. At the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit in February, Cato's Justin Logan discussed U.S. defense spending after the Cold War. So, at the end of the Cold War, the United States defense establishment faced what I've called here the now what problem. And that's characterized by this quote, I'm running out of demons, I'm running out of villains, I'm down to Castro and Kim Il-sung. <laughs> who, while terribly venal, pose limited or at least different threats than the Soviet Union did. And this, of course, was then General and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell, remarking in 1991 about the profound changes that had taken place. And you look here, I've tracked in real 2005 US dollars, US military spending, and you see that it did decline. Rarely do you see a government program decline in less than 10 years by on the order of 25 to 30%. So I don't want to overstate the case. We did cut military spending after the end of the Cold War. And you can see there, actually, this was, most of this was actually set in motion by President George H.W. Bush, but took place largely during the Clinton administration. In 2005 dollars, we went from just approaching half a trillion dollars a year at the end of the 1980s down to just under, uh, right about 350 billion in 2005 dollars. So that's a significant decrease. We did cut defense spending, I don't want to say that, that we didn't. But what's terrifically striking is when you look at the changes in the international system in terms of military spending as a percentage of world military spending. And this is a very rough measure, and you can argue that that's not a good reflection of, of the nature of the international system. But remember what we saw in the previous slide is that the, uh, the changes that took place took place in the 1990s. So starting 1991 through to about 1998, where U.S. defense spending troughed off. And when you look at military spending as a percentage of world, I've, in the sort of war game color motif, put potential enemies, the Soviet Union and then the Russian Federation and China, because people have concerns about Chinese military buildup in red, and I've put us, or the US, or the blue team in blue. So here's the Soviet Union. That is a terrific little line there, where you saw they went from about 25% of world military spending during the 1980s, and just sunk like a stone right at the end of the Cold War, as you would expect. Chinese have increased their military spending, not tremendously, compared to their previous expenditures they have, but you again see there. But what's interesting is you look at the United States as a percentage of world military expenditures, and right at the time that we were making significant cuts to the defense budget, our share of world military spending was going up. So when that line is, the blue line is going up, U.S. military spending is actually going down in real terms. And I think it's just a good reflection of the profound changes that took place at the end of the Cold War. Just as a quick aside, while I'm using my preferred metric of military spending as a percentage of world military spending, you sometimes hear in Washington the idea that we should fix military spending as a percentage of GDP. Some of our friends in town have promoted the idea of 4% for freedom. 
that we would put 4% of US GDP toward military spending. And to my mind, this is one of the dumbest ideas in town, which is saying something. The problem here, of course, is that it may be right for the United States to spend 4% of GDP on defense, or 2% of GDP on defense, or 10% of GDP on defense. The percentage of US GDP that's dedicated to defense spending should rely, in some sense, on the threat environment that the United States faces. If we were to fix, for example, US defense spending as a share of 4% of GDP, that would imply that economic decline would positively impact our security because our defense spending would go down if our GDP went down. And it is one of the most obnoxiously dumb arguments that you see offered in town. So you can have an argument that we should be spending much more on defense, we should be spending much less on defense, or we should be spending right about what we're spending today. But what you shouldn't argue is that fixing uh, defense as a percentage of GDP has any intellectual merit. So the new threats hypothesis cropped up in the 1990s in a lot of different ways, and I have a quote here as well that represents it. We've slain a large dragon, the Soviet Union, but we live now in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And this was noted literary theorist R. James Woolsey III, who was CIA director, he said this in congressional testimony in 1993. And it's worth examining for a minute the idea that if you had told someone in 1980 that in less than 15 years, the Soviet Union will collapse, its empire in Central and Eastern Europe will dissolve, there won't be a war that produces that outcome, and US defense experts are complaining about the subsequent threat environment, many people would have said you'd be crazy, but that's precisely what happened. What's interesting is, based on this, the question becomes, after the Cold War, did we shift resources from dragon slaying, competing with the Soviet Union, deterring it, and potentially preparing to defeat it, to snake wrangling, which is these new sorts of threats. Because the argument was never that they're similar threats, just that they justify a large amount of US military spending, which is a fine argument that we can examine. But there were potential new problems that were raised that replaced the Soviet Union as the justification for American military spending. And these could be anything from terrorism, failed states, and any number of sort of sub-state or non-state threats. Global warming, of course, is the new threat because the argument goes that over the next 100 years, the Bangladeshi coast will move backward about a foot or two. And this is going to cause massive instability in Bangladesh, and we're going to have to figure out something to do about it, which begs the question, if it moves a foot or two over 100 years, presumably people could, like, move during the 100 years. Uh, but again, you see a variety of arguments. And we heard, remember, during the 1990s, we heard Robert Kaplan's argument about the coming anarchy, the idea that there was this sort of swirling Hobbesian chaos across the globe that we were going to need to figure out some way to deal with. We heard about gathering storms with respect to Iraq. There was this sort of general attitude that, you know, we defeated the Soviet Union without a shot being fired, and now we were in a real jam which was a peculiar judgment to my mind to draw. But if this argument's correct, and it may be, what you should expect to see is trade-offs between threats. And that is to say that what you should have expected was a shift in budgetary allocations from resources that would be used to deter or defeat the Soviet Union, which were, should have been anyway, largely fixed in the Navy and the Air Force, including nuclear weapons, high-tech, capital-intensive airplanes, ships, etc to, in particular, the Marine Corps and the Army. Because if you wanted to go after these sorts of threats with conventional military power, that would have to be land power. If you wanted to go in and uh, mop up the Bangladeshi coast, you wouldn't do it with submarines. And if you wanted to engage in nation-building missions in an effort to transform the politics of the Muslim world to head off terrorism, you can't do that very well with fighter bombers. So if you buy this argument, or if James Woolsey buys this argument, what you should expect to see is a, is a resource shift from, in particular, the Air Force and the Navy to the Army and the Marine Corps. So what I've done here is make what I hope is not too torturous a slide that shows service shares of the military budget over time. And what you see is very interesting. Where the lines start to diverge is right when the wars, particularly the war in Iraq, began. And that reflects the supplemental spending. So essentially what we did, if you buy the argument that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, as they were fought, 
were smart ways to go after the terrorism problem. Essentially what we did is we stapled on additional spending on top of the base military budget to deal with those threats. And as you see there through the 1990s, the service shares were basically flat between 25 and 30 percent of the military budget, and then that bottom line is so-called defense-wide spending. So you didn't see those sorts of shifts in resources toward this new, the snakes that uh, Director Woolsey remarked about. You saw largely continuity, and, and I think that does a lot to actually call into question the idea that U.S. defense posture is justified by the sorts of threats that we find ourselves facing now. The ideas that emanate from the nation's law schools in one generation often wind up shaping law and national policy in the next. But as Cato senior fellow Walter Olson argues in his new book, for more than four decades, the nation's law schools have been a hatchery of bad ideas. Olson discussed his book, Schools for Misrule, at the Cato Institute in March. The history of legal education since then has been a history of phases. You might say fads. Education is not immune from fads. Some say it is mostly driven by them. And after the rights revolution of the 1960s came the public interest law revolution of the 1970s. Ideas were changing here that lawyers would be sent out to file lawsuits, especially against the government. They would no longer be sent out to actually staff the government, which is the way Laswell and McDougall had thought about it. They would be sent out to be the power behind the throne by suing the government and making it sign consent decrees. And Constitutional law was revitalized by new theories that the Constitution, instead of being this relatively well-understood older set of instructions on separation of powers and the like, uh, that the Constitution instead, to our delight and surprise, required the institution of the entire agenda of the New York Times editorial page as constitutional law. And this had its day and it began to decline. And then there followed things like critical legal studies, critical race theory. The identity politics strains had quite a lot of staying power. I mentioned slavery reparations. They wound up having enough of a grip on both the faculty and many law students that they continue in their influence to this day. It brings us to the what I read, at least, as the current hot fad in law schools, and that is the field of international human rights. There is no field, so far as I can tell, that is faster growing in the law schools, where more new centers and endowed professorships are springing up. There is a new section of the American Association of Law Schools on international human rights. And if you are thinking of international human rights as the field uh, which goes out and speaks up for dissidents in dungeons and rescues the interests of people who are having their free speech shut down by tyrannical regimes in faraway places, I can tell you that your thinking is very much out of date. It's not that it does not still have some interest in those areas, because it still has some interest in those areas, but the agenda has very much expanded and multiplied and begun to look homeward. In particular, much of the energy of the international human rights movement at law schools is now directed at correcting the perceived human rights violations of the United States. And I'm not just talking about the overseas national security Guantanamo-type ones at all. Uh, I'm talking about things that we would have assumed until very recently were domestic policy issues that were just domestic policy issues, things like the death penalty, which according to many academic authorities is a violation of international human rights life sentences without parole, which are also said to be thought. Labor law, I can't tell you how many times I've read in the last two weeks, reading the sources that I do, that Governor Walker's policies in Wisconsin and in, in general, any cutbacks of uh, what are termed collective bargaining rights for government employees, these are not just a bad idea. These are not just something you should go out and rally against. These are violations of international human rights law, according to many highly placed and respected academics. 
the right to health care, the right to housing, the right to welfare. Some of you, I think, noticed earlier this year when the United Nations issued a very critical report on the human rights record of the United States, and it went on and on and on, and it was done with much input from various U.S.-based groups. Uh, the ACLU is one of the well-known ones, but there are a lot of law school-based groups among them complaining about various violations by the United States, and so the U.N. kind of picked up on a lot of these and said the U.S. is the systematic human rights violator in criminal and penal areas and in lack of social welfare and in lack of adequate equality in, in this and that area. And the Obama administration's response and I should mention, by the way, that the Obama administration's Department of State and foreign policy apparatus is heavily staffed up with the same academics who brought international human rights law to its current prominence. I mean, they just moved right over and, you know, admittedly face a different set of incentives now because now they're hearing from some of the staff people, you know, sovereignty actually is important and, you know, we don't want to give this away. So they aren't behaving exactly as you might have assumed the academics to behave, but and even sometimes they're contradicting their old academic positions. But the response of the Obama administration to that critical US, UN report was to say, it's so unfair to say that we are not moving toward human rights in healthcare. Why, last year we passed Obamacare. That moved the United States significantly closer to compliance with its international obligations on healthcare. And it left me grabbing my head. I never realized we had those obligations to adjust our healthcare funding system in internationally prescribed direction. Where do we go to read about these things? Why don't we know more about it? Well, we will be learning more in the coming years about the right to be free of hate speech, a prescribed international human right, about the right of indigenous tribes to their historic territories, another prescribed right. But let me just mention that you can get it 80 or 90% of the near-term agenda by observing that it is the turning into international human rights of our old friend, the policy content of the New York Times editorial section. It is as if, having tried to constitutionalize all of that 20 years ago, and having found that the actual U.S. federal courts were not having it, you know, here and there they would get a victory, but for the most part, the Rehnquist and Roberts courts have politely declined to constitutionalize most of these rights. It is almost as if they have gone back, fallen back in disarray briefly, and come back to report that all of these things are once again required, but as international human rights. Conventional wisdom dictates that in order to get what you want in Washington, you need to compromise. For Kentucky's new U.S. Senator Rand Paul, compromise may not be viable in a time of massive budgets and rapidly growing debts. He discussed political compromise and spending cuts at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit in February. Many of us want to know how difficult it will be. How difficult is it to get rid of government programs? How difficult is it to cut spending? Reagan, I think, was an amazing speaker, but one of his speeches that I've listened all the way through to recently was a speech he gave at Hillsdale College in 1976. It was the Ludwig von Mises lecture. And, I mean, he was just so good. He could do anecdote after anecdote after anecdote. But one of the stories he told was uh, the same thing. People would ask him, how difficult is it to get rid of a government program? And he said, well, there were only two programs he could remember ever getting, uh, that the government got rid of. And one was that we no longer breed horses for the cavalry. And the second was that we no longer distill rum in the Virgin Islands. The government doesn't do it any longer. Somebody probably does. But he said, you know, here's an example of how hard it is. In 1803, the British government set up a civil servant's position, and this guy was to stand on the cliffs of Dover and ring a bell when Napoleon came. Whenever they spotted Napoleon. Do you know when they finally got rid of that job? 1946. <laughs> government is fairly immune to change. When I got to Washington, I was told that I would get to sit at Henry Clay's desk. Henry Clay uh, is probably the most famous legislator ever to come from Kentucky. He was Speaker of the House. He was elected to the Senate at 29. You have to be 30. There are only two people ever elected at 29, Henry Clay and Joe Biden. But 
Henry Clay was elected, and they actually just went ahead and seated him. Even though the Constitution says you're supposed to be 30, they have a lot of liberality with how they can enforce the rules, and they seated him. So he's the youngest senator ever, became Speaker of the House. He ran for president four times and really came within 38,000 votes of winning the presidency against Polk, either 18... 36 or 1840, somewhere around there. But he became very, he came very, very close. But he was also known, as most of you know, as the great compromiser. Well, the first week I was there, we were having a tour of the National Archives, and one of the other Republican senators was there, and he kind of laughing looked over at me and said, yeah, are you going to be the great compromiser? And I said, well, I don't know. Let me think about it. I'll get back to you on that. And I thought about it, and I read a biography of Henry Clay, and I never really was that predisposed to like Henry Clay. I mean, everybody gives him credit. Oh, it was a great compromise. He found compromise, and he staved off the Civil War. Well, that's one perspective. Or your other perspective could be that his compromise was wrong and fraught with error from the beginning and really may have led inevitably to the war. And the other question is, is when you compromise, are there certain things that are just right or certain things that are just wrong? And people, they give Henry Clay, they say, well, he owned 48 slaves, and sure, he freed some, but he wasn't going to free some until 25 years after his death in 1850. But they still want to give him, I think, more credit than he deserves. My point is, is that the people who argue that, well, he lived in those times, and it was okay because everybody else owned slaves— the thing is, is everybody didn't think it was right even in those times. And as I read his biography, I learned about his cousin. He had a cousin named Cassius Marcellus Clay, not the one you're familiar with, but that's who he was named after. And he was a great abolitionist. He was absolutely and adamantly for abolition. And he had a small printing press. And he was very effective uh, at agitating and just downright pissing people off. One night he's in Foxtown, which I think is east of Lexington somewhere. I'm not even sure it's a real tiny town, but he was there, and he had made the slave traders so mad that there was a family by the name of Squire Turner, and they came upon him. They came upon him from behind and stabbed him multiple times. They got him to the ground, and Tom Turner, the son, held a pistol to his head and fired, and it misfired. He holds the pistol to his head again, and it misfires again. The third time it misfires, by then Cassius Clay's gotten his strength back and he pulls his bowie knife and guts Tom Turner and kills him. Cassius Clay was somebody who didn't compromise. He knew what was right and wrong and he didn't compromise. He and Henry Clay became estranged because Cassius Clay published a letter that Henry Clay had privately written to him, which seemed to indicate that Henry Clay was a little more against slavery than he ever came out in his public life for. But they became estranged. And I guess my question I thought through as I was thinking, will I be a great compromiser, is who are our heroes? You know, should our heroes be a Henry Clay or a Cassius Clay? There were many other great abolitionists at the time. You know, William Lloyd Garrison. I remember reading in my history books as a kid, and they just described him as a zealot or a religious nut. But William Lloyd Garrison wrote in a small press, kind of like maybe a Cato press 30 years ago, a small Cato press. You know, he wrote against abol for abolition and for immediate emancipation. He didn't get it, but by standing for something, for standing for the right principle, I think he drove others, the politicians of his day, the Henry Clays who said, oh, let's send the slaves back to Africa. He drove them in the right direction. And I think it takes people like that. And to me, always my heroes have been those who are the true believers. I think we have to have that and we have to believe in that. If you start out with the compromise and if the compromise is in the middle, you're going to get less than that. So let's start out with what we believe in. It doesn't mean we're always going to get it, but the compromise will be much more to our liking if we start out with something we believe in. We'll also sleep much better at night. I've been involved with a couple of pieces. There's really the Senate does move like molasses, but we've had one bill basically come up, the FAA bill. It was the authorization bill for that. And I thought since everybody was talking about going to 2008 levels, I'd just say reauthorize it at 2008 levels. So I got an amendment voted on, and we lost. We got all the Republicans and no Democrats. It was going to save $2 billion. But the point I made on the floor is if you can't cut $2 billion, how are you ever going to balance a $1.6 trillion deficit? 
We had another vote on that. This was a John McCain amendment that I supported. It was for getting rid of what are called essential air services. They really should be called the unessential air services. It's airports of, they go to cities of 12,000 people and 8,000 people and they could never make a profit and a commercial airline would never ever think about going in there but some congressman lives next to this little city and so he gets a direct flight to Washington coming in. Costs about $400 million a year. Now $400 million is in Washington terms nothing. Getting rid of it will not balance the budget. But if you can't vote to cut $400 million, how are we going to ever get anywhere? We lost 10 Republicans on that one in the Senate. On the continuing resolution fight that John Boehner allowed in the House, he allowed all of these free amendments. And I think it's actually pretty interesting to see, and I'd like to see somebody do a compilation of the votes because they probably had 100 votes or more. A lot of the votes were to cut 10 million here and 20 million here and 50 million here. Most of them lost. Now we did get to where they're talking about more in cuts now. They went from 30 billion to 60 billion. But I've been trying to put that in contrast for people to think about it. The deficit is estimated to be 1.65 trillion. You cut 50 billion, you're still at 1.6 trillion. How are you ever gonna balance the budget? Some of the Republicans have proposed statutory caps. They're well-meaning and they want to balance the budget and they're all for a balanced budget amendment, but they're talking about having spending limited to 20% of GDP in 10 years. And I raised my hand and I said, well, that means you're for not balancing the budget in 10 years because we historically bring in about 18%, so 20% will never balance. And they're like, well, yeah, but we gotta go, we gotta have a glide path. We gotta get there gradually. We'll never get there overnight. But I think it does help to go ahead and promote things that are more bold. We promoted $500 billion in cut, and we called it a modest proposal. We got phone calls from the media thinking it was satire, that we were using the modest and, you know, the modest proposal of Swift terms. I was like, no, it's modest because it is modest. It's literally modest. It would be one-third of one year's problem. But that's the disconnect here. Every Republican in the Senate, every Republican in the House will probably vote for a balanced budget amendment. But everybody in my caucus and everybody on the other side says, don't lead with your chin, don't get out in front, don't talk about the specifics, they'll kill you. I don't think they quite understand how bad the problems are or where we are in the scheme of things. I think the public is actually far readier than they can imagine. I think the public has discounted the fact that all these things are gonna to have to be reformed, entitlements, spending's gonna to have to be cut. And I think the public is actually ready to reward those who would lead rather than waiting. But literally, I'm telling you, in our caucus meeting, they're saying, don't talk about entitlement reform, wait for the president to talk about it. They want it to be, the president to be part of this, to take part of the body blows of talking about entitlement reform. But I've started thinking about entitlement reform kind of the same way, you know when the marketplace does nothing but something dramatic happened, like let's say the interest rates from the Federal Reserve went, up one point and the market didn't react and the commentators will say, well, the reason the market didn't go up is they've already discounted that fact because they knew three weeks ago this is what the Federal Reserve going to do, what their actions would be. And everybody anticipated it was factored in. I think that's already happened with entitlements. You talk to young people, they've factored it in. You ask them, will there be Social Security at 65 or at 67 when you get there? Most of them don't even think there will be Social Security around at all. If they do think it's around, they all realize that there's some significant problem and it will have to be changed. So I think they've already discounted this, and I think then many people are looking for leadership. The other thing about being specific about the cuts is that you gain credibility with a lot of the media because a lot of the media on the other side won't give Republicans any credibility because they won't talk about specifically where the cuts will be. I think also the other thing you can do in talking about it is it's not always just about justifying what is so great about this program because there's always an argument for every program. I think the other half of the argument that we just have to emphasize more than what the program would have done is what's going to happen if we do nothing. If we do nothing, if this glides on and we just keep spending the way we do, within a decade, entitlements and interest will occupy the whole budget. There'll be no money left for anything. I think there's a possibility that within a decade, we have a crisis in the country. Even mainstream people like Greenspan are saying 50-50 chance something's gonna happen, a bond crisis, inflation, something significant's gonna happen. 
There are people saying that, you know, Japan is to the point of no return with its debt. There are people who are saying it's very important when a nation gets to where 100% of their GDP is their total debt. We're there within a year or so. Nations always pay their debt, and there's three ways you pay for it. You either tax people, borrow, or you print it up. I think we're at the point, and we've already created a lot of currency really in the last couple of years. We are at a point that have the repercussions of that come yet. I laughingly uh, I was talking about, um, my father wrote a book, The Case for Gold, many years ago, and I laughingly say, yeah, once upon a time, we had a dollar that was backed by gold. And then for many years, we had a dollar that was backed by treasury bonds. But now we have a dollar that's backed by used car loans, bad used car loans, bad home loans, toxic assets. That's what they bought. The Federal Reserve bought $2 trillion worth of stuff, which they don't want to tell us what it is, but it basically was stuff you wouldn't buy. That's what our dollar is backed by. And I think when you think about it in those terms, it's a bit worrisome that that's what backs our dollar. As far as, you know, where do we go from here? Is Washington ready for change? Can we do anything? People ask me, are you so, what are you most surprised about? I think I'm most surprised about that I think I am and others are influencing the debate already. I think the freshmen in the House are influencing the debate. I think me, by calling more for more cuts, is influencing the debate. And so I think we can change things. We're going to go ahead and come up with our own budget. I mean, they, they think it's unusual that I'm creating my own budget, but it's like, the leadership is going to come up with something that really doesn't excite me. 1.6 versus $1.5 trillion. Where's the difference between the two parties? Where's the difference in policy? So we're going to come up with, because uh, I am willing to compromise, and I am pretty much a moderate at heart, we're going to balance the budget in five years. You can do it. You actually do it without even changing Social Security. Without doing anything to Social Security, you can balance it in five years. But you have to go ahead and acknowledge a couple of things. And these are the things that the Republicans aren't yet ready to do and the conservatives aren't yet ready to do. The major compromise that will have to happen, and this is all about why you can be for compromise, it's just about where you define where the compromise is going to be or what the compromise will be. The compromise, the ultimate compromise that has to occur to avoid a fiscal nightmare in Washington is conservatives have to admit that you can be for a strong national defense but cut military spending. When you admit that, you've gone a long way. They aren't there yet. There's me, Tom Coburn has said he might back me up on some of this, I think Mike Lee will, but there's two or three of us. There's still many good conservatives who don't think you can cut anything from the military. We have to get beyond that. The president's talking about freezing this much of the budget at 2010 levels, non-military discretionary spending. It does nothing, absolutely nothing to the budget. In fact, it adds $13 trillion in debt over the next 10 years. Republicans want to freeze this much of the budget at 2008 levels. It's better, saves maybe that 60, 70, 80 billion in one year, but it still never balances the budget and isn't enough. You can eliminate all the non-military spending and you don't balance the budget. That's how bad the problem is. So you have to look at military, but you also have to look at the entitlements, which is half the problem. We're going to introduce also, in addition to a five-year balanced budget plan, where we crunch all the numbers and put it out there, and that's what you need to do in order not to be called a hypocrite and just say you're not going to give the specifics. Give the specifics, and then you can defend them. We're also going to introduce entitlement reform, and we're going to have Social Security reform sometime in the next week or two. I've jokingly said, once I fix that, we'll fix Medicare, and then I may just come home for a while. But <laughs> with Social Security, basically, you fix 80% of the problem by gradually raising the age, and you can do it over 30 years, basically, and, and make Social Security solvent really forever if you just attach the upper age to longevity. We're living to about 80 now. 80 minus 10, or longevity minus 10, and, and keep it there forever, and you fix a lot of the problem. Ultimately, though, you have to do something else, and it's either changing how you calculate the increases that you give to people, the cost of living increases, or you do means testing. I lean a little more towards just doing means testing, and some say, oh, well, you're just going to make it a welfare program, but it's just sort of acknowledging that it is anyway, and that there's not enough money. The other way is it's a little bit easier to sell because if you do, if you adjust it to cost of living increases, the people who depend on the $600 a month from the Social Security are going to go crazy over, you know, getting rid of their increases. They already are. So but we are going to introduce that coming up. 
And then I think the other thing we have to do, and I think Cato's done a great job at this, is just believing in our system. I like to call it believing in the American system, the system that is capitalism, the system that is profit, the system that is reward. I like the fact that some speakers have begun talking about how you cannot be for job creation if you're against job creators. I think we're winning some of that battle. When we extended the Bush tax cuts and we left in the people making a million dollars a year, I think they were reading some of the polls that shows that the American people believe that someday they might make a million dollars a year. Someday their kids might make a million dollars a year. And so I think people do believe, to me that's the American dream, that you could succeed or that your kids could succeed. We've always believed in that mobility. So I think believing in the American dream, believing in capitalism, I think is something that we can push forward with. If we can get government out of the way, I think it's unlimited what we could do. And that's what I'm going to try to do to the best of my ability. And I thank you very much for allowing me to be here. After several years on the West Coast, our annual Cato University will be held this summer in Annapolis, Maryland. With roots in the debates and events that shaped our country's founding, Annapolis is the perfect setting to experience Cato University and learn about the foundations of libertarianism, limited government, and individual liberty. We hope you'll be able to join us July 24th through the 29th. For additional information, please visit cato-university.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.